0: The plausibility of this networked individualism gains a foothold as we discover that while each of us is in the center of our own networks, we're also competing against each other, vying for attention, people's times, and positive reinforcement. We're driven to quantify reify, and control. And in doing so, despite the fact that so many of us enjoy material abundance, We become a people trained to see our world in terms of scarcity. Hey
1: everybody, welcome to another episode of the Pastor Theologian Show. Today we have part two of a presentation from our national conference in October 2019 from Felicia Wu Song, Digital Life as Secular Liturgy, a Matter of Christian Formation. If you didn't get a chance to listen to part 1, I encourage you to go check that out. It's the episode immediately previous to this one, but let's pick up right where we left off last week.
0: Because there's so much digital stimulation that we can never give each iota of data its due. For the sake of efficiency and productive productivity, we have to decide in advance what is not essential or put more crudely what is considered waste. When we take for granted the desire to become more efficient and better trained in our drives to quantify and reify, we also subconsciously make decisions about what is wasteful. So in the context of our digital age, Zygmunt Bauman writes, making eye contact and therefore acknowledging the physical proximity of another human being spells waste. It portends the necessity of spending a portion of precious yet loathsomely scarce time on deep diving into embodied interaction. I love Bauman. He never spares us his indictment. (laughs) He knows that we've all been there. We make that split second decision to ignore the person in order to pay attention to what's on the screen. We all know that meaningful, embodied interactions with family, friends, and colleagues, our neighbors, take a lot of work, and that the payoff is meaningful and can be great. It is, as Bauman puts it, a form of deep diving. But when we're preoccupied and we're tired, we're still looking for some kind of payoff, it is often more appealing to indulge in social media's promise of a dopamine hit or to answer one more email in order to bring down our anxiety by one notch. To tend to those who are physically proximate to us is, as Bauman writes, a decision that would interrupt or preempt our hungry ritual of clicking through so many other potentially more interesting or potentially more productive possibilities. So taken together, when we train in the the drives to quantify, reify, and control, we arguably begin to live into a distinctive story, a social imaginary that fundamentally positions the self at the center of reality. Okay. In his account of the transformation of personal identity with Western civilization, back to Charles Taylor here, uh, in Sources of the Self, Taylor argues that the source Sources of identity have shifted from external transcendent sources to internal subjective sources of the individual. I'm not gonna unpack that. We'll talk about it later. (laughs) External transcendent to internal subjective, okay? Um, Even in our most recent history with the decline of local community as an orienting factor to modern individuals, As contemporary Americans, we've come to understand community in terms of multiple networks of friends, contacts, and acquaintances, which span time and place, but which very often orient around the self. So in this context, social media platforms feel like seamless additions to modern life because they fit who we have already become and what our social institutions have already become in the early 21st century. Sociologist Barry Wellman called this phenomenon networked individualism, and recognized how social media is organized around networked individualism's key premise that there is no meaningful source of orientation external to the self, okay? The network radiates out from the center, a center that is not a location, a cause, or a common identity. It is simply you, me. Right? So, indeed, if we engage in digital media's permanent connectivity, the plausibility of this networked individualism gains a foothold as we discover that while each of us is in the center of our own networks, we're also competing against each other, vying for attention, people's times, and positive reinforcement. We're driven to quantify, reify, and control. And in doing so, despite the fact that so many of us enjoy material abundance, we become a people trained to see our world in terms of scarcity. Here again, I turn to Tish Harrison Warren to juxtapose the two social imaginaries that American Christians must recognize and wrestle with. She writes, in contemporary America, our our daily formation through our habits of consumption is often at odds with our formation in word and sacrament. In this alternative economy of the true bread of life, we are turned inside out so that we are no longer people marked by scarcity, jockeying for our own good, but are new people, truly nourished and therefore able to extend nourishment to others. The economy of the Eucharist is true abundance. There is enough for me, not in spite of others, but because we receive Christ together as a community. So, the promise of the gospel speaks of a radical promise of abundance. And the work of the church is to be a demonstration plot of how to live into this promise. And as our soul formation, or more accurately, deformation, is taking place every day in our digital ecology, the church is supposed to counterform us. We're supposed to learn how this new economy of the Eucharist and the inexplicable multiplication of bread and loaves can well, bread and loaves, loaves and fishes, right, can subvert the zero-sum game of our society? How do we get ourselves turned inside out so that we are no longer compelled to jockey for our own good, to jockey for attention online? How do we go, let go of the former things and submit ourselves to becoming a new people? It's in this way that I think The iconic computer scientist, Jaron Lanier, was onto something very, very true when he wrote that when we live in the flow of social media and its practices, it means that you implicitly accept, he writes, implicitly accept a new spiritual framework. You have agreed to change something intimate about your relationship with your soul you have probably, to some degree, effectively renounced what you think is your religion, even if that religion is atheism. What Landry is saying here is that he sees social media's spiritual framework to be characterized by optimization. He argues that social media shapes us so that we come to view time and place and others and even ourselves instrumentally. We come to think that everything in this world is merely fodder, for us to use, to write about, to manipulate, for our own pleasure and good. Therefore, every time we find ourselves trying to optimize our online presence for more views and more likes, every time we begin to even think in terms of optimizing our identities and our relationships, Lanier argues that we have effectively renounced our formal religious commitments and begun to serve a new master. He proclaims, you have been baptized, If Lanier is right, the story embedded in contemporary digital ecologies not only competes against the spiritual frameworks we profess, it also distorts and undermines our capacity to commune with God and others in the ways that we are created, because it baptizes us into utilitarian and industrialized conceptions of time, place, relationship, and the human condition. Okay, I know my time is running out, so I better get to what can we and should we do about this as a church. Uh, So for a long time, I had thought about um, what what would motivate digital resistance. Um, And I had thought that, that maybe if we just understood technology better, understood its fundamental nature, understood the theology of technology, understood how it functioned as an artifact of our God-given creative powers, but also bound up in the fallenness of creation, maybe if I just wrap my mind around that, I would be able to tame my own life habits and properly situate the digital in my life. So I've been trying this, but I've come come to the conclusion that maybe our energies are actually better off devoted somewhere else. Okay, not to say that there aren't interesting insights and worthy, worthy, worthy things to consider in the theology and philosophy of technology, but rather maybe what we, we need is not some more knowledge about technology, but actually a deeper understanding of what it means to be human, and actually a more concerted effort to live into that theological anthropology right, that asserts human beings as being created to enjoy communion with God, our neighbor, and the created order within the possibilities and limitations of place and time. So it's to this end that one starting point that I, found, I have found generative is the Augustinian understanding of Christian formation and bodily practices, as Jamie Smith has written on in his works Desiring the Kingdom and You Are What You Love. So in these works, Smith argues that rather than assuming that we are formed primarily by knowledge, or beliefs, we should better appreciate how we are shared, shaped by our loves, the stuff that churns in our guts, as indicated most often through what we do with our corporeal bodies. To me, this theological anthropology that Smith proposes is especially helpful in illuminating how, despite what knowledge we may have about how permanent connectivity is messing with us, right? despite our intuitive sense, that aspects of our digital habits are impoverishing our lives. Few of us intentionally work to curb these habits. We know a lot. We know a lot about how we should live, but it doesn't lead to a transformed life. No. So our problem is not a lack of knowledge. Our problem is a lack of recognition in the formative powers of the visceral and the bodily. Right? So we would be better off recognizing how it is that we are profoundly shaped by what we do with our bodies, our habits, our routines, right? And that in each routine, we're being trained, right? in a, towards a certain goal, into a certain story, some telos, right? So in all of our digital practices of checking our emails, reading our social media, when we first wake up, right before we go to bed, in between meetings, waiting in line, our desires and our souls are being formed, misformed in a particular direction right, like a vine on a trellis. We are being trained towards becoming some sort of person. And unfortunately, when we are unreflective about our practices, Smith argues that we inevitably find ourselves engaged in secular liturgy, right, these personal cultural habits that we routinely practice with our bodies, which have the effect of misforming our loves and our desires. And they continually misdirect our desires towards things that falsely claim to fulfill our longings and manage to draw us away from the very communion with God for which our souls thirst. So what are we to do, especially when it comes to our digital practices? Well, first, we need to recognize that they are secular liturgies. That's the first part, right? Awaken ourselves to our external behaviors. Become aware of when we are taking those micro moments and consider how those behaviors are signaling and shaping something about our loves and who we are becoming. We need to pray and ask for for vision to see clearly how these secular liturgies are setting up blinders and obstacles to hearing the still small voice of our Lord. And then after becoming conscious of our secular liturgies, Smith encourages us to exercise, identify and exercise counter-liturgies that push back against these misformations of the heart. Right? So so much of discussions about digital resistance are about just getting rid of, right? Getting rid of the negative. Right? This, is, this point is saying instead of simply focusing on removing the bad, right, we need to fill ourselves right, with the things that we actually are longing for. Right? Why? The Augustinian point, because our hearts are restless and will remain so until we find our rest in God. So in response to our digital, digital secular liturgies, checking our phones when we're bored, our soothing daily wind down of 30 minutes with Candy Crush or Instagram, right? we should ask, what can I be doing right, to disrupt these digital habits and open myself up to the opportunity to taste a different kind of living? So there's an obvious place to start for looking for counter-liturgies. It's our rich Christian heritage of spiritual disciplines, right? The disciplines of solitude and silence, scripture reading, prayer, fasting, all of them can be practiced in some form, right? Traditional, adapted to the digital context, right? Fasting from particular apps, right? All of these can be seen anew as counter-liturgies, that push back against the subtle but real misformations of the heart when our lives are framed by the dictates of the digital. Another approach to counter liturgies is to think in terms of experiments, which can create situations that, the potential to reve- that have the potential to reveal to ourselves the dependence we have on our digital devices. All right, so, for those of us who are really nervous about doing some like, massive change to your life, Experiments are a good way to start, right? Experiments can be modest, they can be contained, they encourage us to just step out of our comfort zones a little bit, try to taste something new. It's gonna be frightening at first, but maybe actually becomes a source of life and vitality. So um, I'm just gonna mention one possible experiment. Um, So over and against our secular liturgies of digital multitasking, What if we engaged in experiments in monotasking? So when we drive, we just drive. (laughs) We don't listen to anything. We don't, you know, like, we just drive. It's just quiet in the car or if you're with someone, right, talking to them. But especially when you're alone, right, you just drive. What would happen, right? When you're waiting online at the checkout, just wait. Don't pull out your phone. Just wait, right? When you're doing laundry, just do laundry. That's monotasking, right? So what happens to our brains? What happens to our hearts when we stop feeling it? Do I become more aware of the place I'm at? Do I become more aware of the noise that's actually in my brain? What do I hear in my soul? What do I hear from God in that silence? We could talk about other experiments later. A third way to approach counter-liturgies is to think in terms of creatively guarding essential aspects of our personhood, such as our embodiment or our capacity to inhabit rather than spend time. So guarding sacred spaces or places, right? So my family, we have a dock where we charge all of our devices at night. It is in the farthest possible place from all of our bedrooms. (laughs) This is on purpose, right? This is is staking down a flag in our bedroom saying, these are sacred spaces for rest and stillness, okay? That's that's what it's saying. Um, Our dining table is a sacred space for mutual presence, conversation, and eating, right? Um, We work to keep our phones away and off of that space. Again, it's just putting a boundary, saying this is a sacred space. We could guard sacred time, right? Um, I know for myself, I am best when I wake up before my family does, and I can enjoy a slow, quiet ritual of tea, see the morning light, have my own thoughts before everybody tells me what they think, right? So (laughs) during that time, I try to avoid my phone for at least 30 minutes, right? Right? I try to have it so that my prayer and scripture come first, that they fill me first before I find out what's going on in that terrible little box, right? At night, similarly, I delight in turning off my phone. Turning it off, I literally turn, I power it off every night, and it is truly a delight because it actually makes me feel free. I feel like no new input can come in. It's just what's in my house, right? I can rest, I can return to myself. So what I particularly like about Smith's use of the terms secular liturgy and counter-liturgy is its reliance on the word liturgy, right? Liturgy in its Greek origins means what? Work of the people. This is a definition that warms the heart of any sociologist because it brings out the way that certain practices are not truly individual in nature but are actually the product of the people. That is many people, a community, a culture. And when we think about social media and so many of our digital practices, they retain their power and remain sustainable precisely because they are practiced as a people, a group, a culture. So if secular liturgies are practices that possess power because we engage in them together, then Christians need to find a way to engage in bodily counter-liturgies together, While personal acts of technological self-discipline and restraint are surely essential, I believe it's going to be the communal effort of counter-liturgies, the work of the people, that proves effective and sustainable. Here, um, I'm just gonna move to close here because I know my time is running out here. Um, I think part part of what we want to recognize as the church here, Thinking about counter liturgies is is that we live in a culture right now, this is a really exciting time for the church and technology. Because for the past four years or so, people are waking up and saying, you know, technology's messing with us. I'm stressed out. I need to spend hundreds of dollars and go to a digital detox retreat, right? I need these productivity apps to take me off of social media. They're called freedom, right? Um, You have celebrities and people from within the industry coming out and saying, no, this this is not good, right? Um, So it's a really interesting time for the gospel to find new form and new new shape, speaking into the desires and the hunger that so many people are expressing. And if we look around us, we'll see that um, there are many institutions that also already see this, and they are enacting counter-liturgies of sorts, Right? So, um, for example, if you look at the CEOs in Silicon Valley, right, they understand that they want something different because they send their children to tech-free schools, right? That's very interesting, right? Um, Lead edge art museums understand that there's something about sacred spaces because they hand out colored pencils and paper to visitors to draw and doodle when they come in the presence of art rather than just looking at their phones to read on the piece of art that they're standing in front of, right? Musicians and performers understand that their live performances are sacred in some ways because they lock up their, digital, their audience's digital devices in yonder neoprene bags, right? So that their audiences can be fully present um, in these experiences. Our Jewish brothers and sisters understand this when they ask congregants, To turn off and put away their electronic devices in the synagogue because they regard the synagogue as a holy place of worship where the word of God dwells, right? And thus deserving reverence and respect. And the Buddhists, yeah, they got it, right? Because they're offering us all this language about mindfulness, right? And so, what is the genuine good news of Christianity, right? And this is where I'm excited to be with you all because you all love theology. Right? And there's theologies of embodiment, creational theology, Trinitarian theology, pneumatology, right? We can spend all day just reflecting on incarnational theology. Each of them is just filled with incredible treasures for the world, right? That tell a different story that, that can fill people's hunger. Because people are tired, they're ready, right? But we just have to bring it in a way that addresses the deep needs that people are already uh, expressing. Okay, will you pray with me in closing? Oh God, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are fixed on you For in returning and rest, we shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be our strength. You are worthy of all praise. Help us to be faithful. Teach us how to abide in you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of the CPT Podcast, a theology podcast for the church. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider throwing us a like, sharing the podcast online, subscribing, leaving a review. Uh, Anything like that would go a long way towards helping other people hear about the podcast. Uh, The CPT Podcast is a ministry of the Center for Pastor Theologians. You can learn more about the CPT by visiting us at pastortheologians.com. You can also find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our host for today's episode was Todd Wilson. Our producer and editor was Trenton Jones. Our music was composed by Andrew Gerlacher. I'm Zach Wagner. Thanks for listening.